And then if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open to Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 7 through 16 uh, this morning. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us on Father's Day. To kind of give you a little bit of background, uh, we have been in a series or a journey called Resurgence, as I mentioned earlier, from September till now. And this journey has taken us through what's called the Book of Acts in the New Testament, which is the record of the original church. When the church first started 2,000 years ago, it describes the journey of what the church looked like, what the church did. And so we're looking to the past to kind of help us define the future. So not trying to replicate what happened 2,000 years ago, but ask the question, what is a modern-day reflection of what the church is supposed to look like in light of what it looked like when it originally started? So we've been going through the book of Acts. And so we're in, in Acts chapter 20 as we've been kind of working our way through each passage. And we're going to hit on something that we obviously, from the beginning of this series, we hit on a number of times because it keeps coming up over and over and over from the text that we keep reading. And that is the, the understanding of, of God's power. And we're going to today talk about the miraculous option. And the reason I've called it option is because it becomes an option for many of us that we don't take. Uh, in fact, one of the, the challenges we have when we talk about God's power is that we desire to see God move and do the miraculous and be powerful, but there's something inside of us that is afraid that if we, if we lean into that and we contend for that and then God somehow doesn't show up, then we're going to look like a fool. And so it, we tend to shy away, and instead of it being the primary or the first or the only option, it becomes something that really falls down to like the last option in our lives. When we've tried everything else, then the last option is that somehow we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to break through miraculously. What if the opposite was true? What if people who say they're followers of Jesus are actually supposed to live in such a way that we are constantly seeing the brokenness and the needs of people around us and it forces us to constantly be in prayer for them so we actually pray for everyone about everything all the time? What if it was supposed to actually be that way? You know, I think it actually is supposed to be that way. In fact, listen to First Thessalonians. Paul wrote this. This is probably, many of you are familiar with this, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Anybody heard those before? Pray without ceasing. Usually when we hear that, we freak out. That means I have to walk around all day with my eyes closed and I mumble? No, that's not what it is. Praying without ceasing is constantly being in a mode where you're tapping into what God is doing and therefore you're going to God for what's in front of you. When we usually stop when we read that verse, but what if God's wanting us to actually pray unceasingly and we're all supposed to do that? How do we know we're all supposed to do that? Because the rest of verse 18 says this, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So uh, the will of God for every person who's a follower of Jesus is to pray for everyone about everything all the time. That's what we're supposed to do. The, because why? Because we serve a God who has power that can change Physical reality can change hearts, can change minds, can transform souls, and he is the only one who can do that. And so for us, since we're the ones who follow him, we are the ones that always should take the miraculous option in our life. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read this passage because when I read through this, it's really interesting. This little, we're going to actually read 7 to verse 12 to focus in on what we're going to look at this morning. You'll see that obviously there's a miracle in this passage, but the way it comes about is kind of a little bit strange because what you and I are going to start to understand is that this is something that happens over and over and over and over again because if you remember at the beginning of the series back in September, I mentioned that when you and I read through the book of Acts, this is normal Christianity. It's not abnormal Christianity. It's not even Pentecostal Christianity. It's normal Christianity. We've just made it, made it abnormal 
and it's supposed to be normal. So let me just read, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read starting verse 7 down to verse 12 here in this passage. So some backstory, obviously last week we were in Acts 19, Paul was in Ephesus, then he travels again like he normally does, and he ends up in a city called Troas, and that's where we pick up in the story, he's in this city. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the windowsill, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And becoming overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had got, gone up, he had broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them uh, a, uh, a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I just, just settle in. Just let your mind think what just happened. Okay, let's just break it down. Paul is super long-winded. He is. He talks till midnight and then Eutychus falls asleep falls out of the window, dies, Paul goes down, raises him from the dead, and what does Paul do? He goes back and he keeps speaking till daybreak. As though like, this is no big deal, dead guy, now he's alive, let's get back to what I was talking about. I just want you to think about it, because this, this is, is almost, it's almost matter of fact for Paul, but for you and I, it's actually the opposite. Can you remember last time somebody died because they fell out of their chair while I was preaching because they fell asleep and we raised them from the dead? It hasn't happened right? Because nobody falls asleep at Antioch. I know that's not, that's true, you know, because the ushers have a little, little buzzer that they can electrocute you in your chair if you do. I'm kidding. Some of you are like, really? No. Let me try it. Don't do it. <laughs> but we read this and we're like, well, this just seems kind of strange that Paul would just go back to preaching. I'm convinced that one of the reasons this is included in the, in the, the story in the narrative of Acts is because this was normal Christianity for Paul. And if you've read through, it happens all the time. It isn't like this one isolated incident. It's something that happened all the time to Paul. So this record reminds us there is always the miraculous option. We just tend to forget there is because we go other directions or we lose our faith or for a number of reasons. And so this morning, I, I want to talk about this in terms of, first of all, three things of, of why the miraculous tends to be the last resort instead of the first option? Why do we tend to default to that instead of going to God first and believing that God can break through? So the first thing is, look at verse 9. The reason that it's the last resort instead of the first option is because we have a tendency to see tragic circumstances instead of miraculous opportunities. Now hear me. This is just not positive spin, okay? But in, in verse 9, obviously, can you imagine if this did transpire this morning? If somebody falls down dead in our service, what's the first thing that we're going to do? It's, that's right. It's not wrong, but it's the first thing we're doing is going to call 911. Most of you, if you're, if you're CPR certified, you're going to make sure if that person's heart's not beating, they're not breathing, you're going to start into CPR. we got an AED on the back wall. We're going to pull that off. We're going to go for it. We're going to do those things because that's the normal thing to do. But what if, what if we laid hands on that person and we prayed first? Because if we go through all that and we resuscitate them, they're alive and that's wonderful. But what if God wanted to bring them back from the dead without that? Now, I'm not saying we delay time and say, okay, well, let's just wait. No, I'm not saying that. 
But what I'm saying is that you and I have a tendency to react in moments of difficulty and high anxiety and tragedy, and we only see it as a tragic event, not an opportunity for God's miraculous to break through. They saw that. Paul sees Eutychus fall. Can you imagine? He falls out of the window, and they must all rush to the window and looked out. Yep, sure enough, look at him. He looks like he's dead. So they go down, and then Paul raises him from the dead because that's normal for Paul. But what's so important is that Paul didn't panic. He saw this as God's opportunity. And there's a shift. It's not just positive spin, but when things happen around us, yes, it can be difficult and it can be overwhelming. But do you think maybe that it's possible that the God of the universe knows the world enough and knows what's going to happen, that he's placed you at the right place at the right time because you're a follower of Jesus and you have the miraculous option and others don't? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is absolutely yes. You're there for a reason. Paul saw that in his life. And sometimes we, we need a shift in the way that we see the world. In fact, we are, there's many great advantages of living in the country. There's a lot of disadvantages. If you haven't been outside the U.S., I encourage you to do that and to especially go into places where there is high poverty and tragedy happens almost daily. We don't live in a world like that. We're, we're relatively insulated from a lot of what the world deals with. I have a really close friend. His name's Michael Badraki, and he's from Uganda. He grew up in Uganda. And when we were getting to know each other, he was telling me his journey and his story of how he grew up completely opposite of my upbringing. So when he was, when he was growing up in Uganda, it was right at the height of the AIDS crisis. And so we know globally, of, of course, lots of countries got hit, but Africa got hit heavily by the AIDS crisis. And so people were dying every day. In fact, there were, there were literally thousands and thousands, if not millions of orphans in spread across Africa because both of their parents died from AIDS. And so he's growing up in this, and in the middle of all that, there's a, there a civil war within Uganda that was driven by a guy named Joseph Kony, who was the head of the Lord's Resistance Army, who was literally capturing children and enslaving them to become soldiers. And so he's growing up in the middle of this. So there's like bad news every day. There's tragedy. There's people dying all the time. And this is what he's raised in. And so I'm just, after he's finished, like he's starting sharing your story, I just feel this weight like, oh man, I got nothing to complain about. And this guy grew up in that, and then, but Michael's one of the most positive people you're ever going to meet. And he starts telling me, he said, here's the deal. He said, one of the things that we've realized is when bad things happen in Africa, that means God is going to do something miraculous. And so he started to share, and most people don't realize this because it doesn't, it doesn't hit the news, but about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, when AIDS was really a huge epidemic, what was happening in Uganda is that the church spontaneously responded to the need around them. This is the church in Uganda, and started caring for people who were dealing with issues of AIDS and orphans. Also, this is in Uganda. It's actually it's poor people helping poor people. And the result was that thousands, if not millions, of people came to Christ as a result of the AIDS crisis in Africa. And now estimates are 50% of the people in Uganda claim Jesus as their Lord. See, what we would see as a tragedy was God's opportunity and every time I would sit down with Michael and I would like, the sky is falling, the world's coming to an end, and he'd look at me and he'd smile. He'd say, no, it's God's opportunity. God's about to do something amazing. God's gonna do something that changes people's lives. And that's the shift that we have to take. Now, yes, there is tragedy and there is loss of life and there is pain and there is suffering in the world, but at the same time, God is in the process of redeeming the world through his miraculous power. So if we start to see the things that are in front of us as God's opportunities, we will take the option of the miraculous instead of making it the last resort. Second thing, look at verses 8 and 9. The miraculous becomes the last resort instead of the first option also because we've lost our hunger to believe for more. We've gotten jaded. But in verses 8 and 9, 
It says, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and it says, then Eutychus was sitting at the window. Now, we would just read past that and not think much of it. So, in the context there, when people would go, because remember, they don't have electricity, so when you would go out and you would know that you may be returning at night, you would take a lamp with you, but normally in a house, you would have a few lamps, maybe two or three, that would be spread around a room or area to light it at night, but that would be it. But there are many lamps there because there are many people who had gathered to hear Paul speak. And there was a hunger. In fact, what, what they're estimating because of the, the way that the, the room was probably laid out is that there were so many lamps in the room, the room got hot, and it's a good chance that there was not a lot of space. So Eutychus found his way over to the window where there was room and where there was fresh air. So he was hanging out there because the room was packed. Why was the room packed? Because just, just back up for a moment, because we, we remember we, we mentioned that Paul's in the city of Troas. Troas came up earlier in Paul's journey in Acts chapter 16. If you recall in Acts chapter 16, what happened is that Paul was out sharing the gospel and he tried to go into two different places and the Holy Spirit said, nope, Paul, you're not going there. And he redirects him and they, they end up in this city called Troas. And in the middle of the night while Paul's sleeping, God gives him a vision of what we call the man from Macedonia, a man crying out for help for Paul to go. And then the story goes on and Paul ends up in Philippi. And when he gets to Philippi, a church gets planted through Lydia a slave girl gets freed from a demon. An earthquake hits when Paul and Silas have been thrown in jail. And a Philippian jailer and his entire family get saved. That all transpires. And where does, where does that get started? It gets started in Troas. So this group of people who had come to know Jesus or were hungry to know Jesus had heard about all that will happen to Paul and they knew of him. And so when Paul shows up, guess where they are? They're there. Why? Because they believe God actually might show up here and do something and we don't want to miss it. There was a hunger that they had that God was going to break through. And what has happened to us is that we have a tendency, we lose that hunger. We lose that desperation for God to break through because we have a tendency to fill our lives with all kinds of things. In fact, the Bible describes kind of the situation we find ourselves in. Jesus uses a couple different terms. He uses the term, term lukewarm in, in Revelation, but in his own words in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, listen to this, he said, talking about the end times which we're in right now, he said, sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. Why? Because we've been jaded by life, we've been disappointed, and so therefore we don't have a passion, we don't have a drive anymore. I, I have a, a guess at one of the reasons why we don't have a drive and a passion and a hunger for God anymore because we don't think we need him anymore. Now, we wouldn't say that, but we have found everything in our culture to somehow plug the holes in our ship that's sinking and thinking that we can stay afloat on our own. And we can hold out for a while, but eventually it's gonna catch up to us because we choose the miraculous as the last option when it should be the first option. So let me put it this way. Anybody been to Olive Garden before? All right, we all, most people love Olive Garden. So when you get to Olive Garden, you know the way it works, right? You get your menu, and then shortly after the menu shows up, breadsticks show up, right? Which then, it's deadly, right? Breadsticks show up, you're, you're looking at, you know, what's on the menu, and what, depending whether you order salad or you order soup, that shows up shortly too. And then you're looking at the menu, right? And man, it looks good. And you're looking at, man, I could go for that, that, Itali that tour of Italy that's got like three main courses on it, right? You're super hungry, and so you order it, right? And you just can't wait. But here comes the breadsticks and here comes the salad. And so while you're w looking at your menu, you're eating one breadstick. And by the time you finish ordering, you know you're done. So you go with the second one. And then when the salad shows up, you got to have a third, right? Anybody ever been there? That's the way it goes, right? <laughs> and it's so good. And then 
here comes the main course. And when the, when the server sets it down in front of you, you're like, oh, that looks good, but oh, right? You're full. Anybody ever left Olive Garden without eating everything on your plate? Yeah, probably every time you go, right? They're the masters of the to-go cup, right, or the to-go uh, plate. Why? Because they know. You're going to fill up on stuff that you think is really good, but you're never going to get to the main course. Breadsticks and salad are great, but that's not why you're there, hopefully. You're hopefully there for the main course. So when you look at our culture, we have lots of breadsticks. We have lots of soup. We have lots of salad. Lots of stuff that's great, but it's not the main course. And when you get to the main course, you're no longer hungry. Why? Because you filled your life with all these other things that keep you distracted long enough to make you think, I'm okay. And you would never say it, but we do. We function as though we don't need God. And by the way, Africa is, speaks volumes to our country and some conviction. We know. I've had friends from Africa look at the church in America, and this is their conclusion. They're like, impressive. I'm like, thank you. They're like, no, no, no. It's really impressive what you've done without the help of God. I'm like, oh, okay, that has a little different spin than what I first thought you were trying to say. <laughs> and it's true. I'm not saying God is absent from the church in America, but boy, we've done a whole lot of stuff that we say, look at God. And we're like, no. That's just lights and, you know, good musicians and impressive programs and all the stuff that we think is, which, by the way, the world has moved on from, but we just haven't figured that out yet. The world is not looking for lights and show and big stuff. The church is. That's why we move from church to church. But you know what the world's looking for? They're looking for acceptance, love, and power. And that's the three things we have to offer. Are we offering them? Do they understand the miraculous option in their life? Then the third thing. The, the third reason that the miraculous option becomes last instead of first is because fear blinds us to God's miraculous power. Fear and anxiety do a job on us to keep us from seeing what God is doing in front of us. In verse 10, this is what's crazy. In the midst of this happening, again, if this happened on Sunday morning, someone dies in our midst, we are, the anxiety level in the room goes through the roof. But look at what Paul does. It says, Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, don't be alarmed. His life is in him. I'm convinced the only person who was calm was Paul. He's like, hey, just relax. You're letting your fear and your anxiety rise. Now you're, you're, in, you're starting to go into panic mode, and Paul comes down and goes, no, 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 God's going to bring him back, and Paul raises him from the dead. Why is that significant? Because you and I let our anxiety dictate our actions. We do. We react. We react to what's in front of us. Now, I get that. In fact, it's part of our makeup mentally. Our brains are geared and wired to react to situations. You probably, you know, you've heard there's, they used to say there's two, but there's really three primary impulsive, responsive actions that your brain takes in any situation where anxiety goes up and where fear is present. The first one's fight, right? Which is the person who, I'm going to take control. I'm going to fight. I'm not going to back off. And, and we call those heroes, you know, they run towards the battle instead of running away from it. We're like, yeah. Then there's a second one, which is flight, which is, oh, I ain't no hero. I'm out of here, right? There's, there's something bad going on. I'm going to run the other way, right? So we're afraid. And then there's a third one. They've discovered it's called freeze. And literally, you become paralyzed with fear. And so you don't step in or step back. You just stand still because you don't know what to do. When you and I are followers of Jesus, you know what? We're not supposed to have any of those three instinctively, God needs to rewire our brains because there's a fourth option. It's called faith. And the reason you're present in the situation is because you're the one person like Paul who has faith to see the miraculous option that others don't see. 
What if we, that became our default? What if we shifted and we were the person present that realized, now listen, I get it, because I, I did first service, I could feel in room two, you're like, but if I pray and God doesn't raise him from the dead or God doesn't heal him, then I'm going to look like a fool. No, you won't look like a fool. Leave that up to God. This is his reputation. If you're convinced it's on you, then you've missed the point. Let God do what God wants to do. If he doesn't heal him, let him be God. But if we don't ask, we won't see it. We won't see God's miraculous power occur in our lives. But what if we were the people of faith? What if that was the default? That we stayed calm, we prayed first, and yes, then we did all the other things that we do as humans, and that's fine. But what if we prayed first? I said this a few weeks ago, and I'm convinced. If we prayed first, I guarantee we'll see more miracles. Just because we're asking and we're seeking for God to break through. So the last three things I want to look at from the passage are when we get to the point of how do we shift from it being the last option to be the first option? How do we know that's to be true in our life? How does the miraculous option become the first option? Look at verse 10. The first thing is this. It becomes the first option when it becomes the normal option. So I mentioned this earlier. But again, verse 10, this is normal for Paul. Paul's the only one that's not panicked. He has seen miracle after miracle after miracle. This has become a part of his life. So when a guy dies, Paul, which is crazy, Paul doesn't panic. He responds to what God is doing in the moment. Why? Because for him, this is the normal option. If we just go back a few chapters, in Acts chapter 14, Paul was witness to a crippled man who was healed. In Acts chapter 16, Paul saw a, a girl freed from a demon. He also saw an earthquake hit and a whole family get saved. And then you get Acts chapter 19, which is really crazy, we talked about the last couple weeks, where literally, and we don't know how it all worked, but there were handkerchiefs and there were aprons that touched Paul and they distributed those and people got healed. Don't try that at home, okay? We don't understand why that worked that way, but this was normal for Paul. There wasn't another option. This was the option. And that's where when we begin to live out a rhythm of life where praying for the miraculous is normal, it will always be the first option. But when it's abnormal, it tends to go down the list because we don't think it's gonna happen, so we shy away from that. But think about this for a moment. If we didn't have the church as we know it today, not just Antioch, but we didn't have the church, and all we had was this. In fact, all we had was the book of Acts. And we were to read through the book of Acts, and we're to say, okay, if there's supposed to be a church, this is what it's supposed to look like, and we're just to read through all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. When we were done, would we have this? No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Because what we do here and this, it's not in here. It's not that it's wrong. It's just not in here. There's nothing where people come to church and spectate. There's nothing where people opt in and opt out of church all the time. There's nothing where, where the church is devoid of power. There's no place where people aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no place where people are on all on God's mission. That's all through the book of Acts. So if, we, if that's true, if we believe this, and this is why we've gone through resurgence, it's not to do a Bible study on Acts. If that's all we've gotten out of it, then we're a fool. It's so we change the rhythm of the way we live our lives. Because if Jesus did it 2,000 years ago, and we believe in Hebrews 13, 8, which Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, guess what? He still does it today. We've just forgotten how to scratch that itch, that scratch, or scratch that itch, however you say it. But we've forgotten what that means. Because we've just defaulted to, it's not the first option anymore. But it was always the first option for them because it was normal Christianity. 
Because if we live in a Christianity that is devoid of power, then we are to be pitied more than the whole world. Because then we're just like everybody else. We have no hope for transformation. We have no hope for healing. We have no hope for resurrection. We have no hope for eternity unless God's power breaks through in our lives. Second thing is that miraculous option becomes first when it becomes the only option. Now, this one's really hard for us because we have lots of options. When bad stuff happens, we got lots of options. But what if, what if it's the only option? And this, again, is the advantage of living in a country where you don't have everything that's given to you or provided for you. One of the fastest-growing movements, both for, we're a part of a four-square family, four-square denomination, but one of the fastest-growing movements in the world as far as churches is happening in Cambodia. And it's happening amongst, uh, and it's a four-square movement. And it was spearheaded a number, a number of decades ago, ago by a guy named Ted Ulbrich, who was a pig farmer. Can't get more simple than that, right? And he and his wife have made a commitment to care for children through orphanages. But when you live in a context where poverty is through the roof, corruption is through the roof, and there's all kinds of stuff going on around you, you don't have all the options to take. And so Ted has shared multiple times, and he said, listen, when you encounter a mom or a dad who doesn't have the option of taking their child to the doctor. You only have one option. When you encounter families that can barely put food on the table and clothes on their kids' backs, you only have one option. And what has happened in Cambodia is miracle after miracle after miracle. Why? Because that's the only option. And there are literally thousands, I think this last tally was up to 3,000 four-square churches in Cambodia and hundreds of orphanages caring for thousands of kids. And there's actual documentation of people being raised from the dead. This is Book of Acts stuff. It's kind of exciting. You can like say yes. (laughs) Because it's the only option. I want you just to think about that. Now, listen, it's hard when you live with lots of options to make this the only option, but maybe if it's the first option, you will never get to the second option because it becomes the only one. See, when our backs are against the wall, we have no hope. We have no way of getting through what we're going through, and God is the only option. That's when I'm convinced God breaks through. He always does that. Isn't it interesting in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and where did he let them to? He led them intentionally to a dead end. It's called the Red Sea. And if you read through it, the first thing they started doing, they started complaining, we should have been stayed in Egypt, right? And then what does God do? Boom, he breaks through because they only had the miraculous option. So once you take a look at this short video, this is actually one of my professors in my master's program, actually been a friend of mine for a number of years, but he shared this at our conference we were at in Nashville a few weeks ago about his experience uh, with his, his grandchild and how God broke through for his family. So take a look at this. Well, when my daughter Kathleen and her husband Michael were pregnant with their third child, prenatal high-def ultrasounds revealed that the baby had a genetic disorder, which leads to dwarfism, where the head and body are okay, but the legs and the arms are extremely short. More than that, growth rates for the different parts of the body were so inconsistent that the doctors predicted that the baby would not survive or would be severely deformed and handicapped urging them to have an abortion. Being Foursquare ministers, they decided to trust God instead. Finally, on August 21st, at around eight months, the doctor said the baby was so severely stressed, uh, she would not survive the day without intervention. They induced labor and again warned the parents that the child would not survive. But we all prayed and Brielle was born perfectly healthy. 
but was at, you know, you talk about my child is 50%. The child was 0.0001% of normal growth rate. One one thousandth of a percent growth rate. And had beyond that tiny little arms. As Brielle grew, she was so small that at seven months, she was still wearing newborn clothing and her precious little arms barely cleared her sleeves. At that juncture, the doctor said she worried that Brielle's arms were not correctly connected to her body and asked her parents to bring her in for a special appointment to determine a proper course of treatment. On Sunday, April 17th, um, 2019, just several weeks ago, days before the appointment, and while her husband Michael was leading worship, Kathleen held her baby and began to pray, God, you can heal my baby. God, you can heal my baby. Then something welled up inside of her and speaking straight forth, she said, arms grow out in the name of Jesus. Suddenly these tiny little hands popped out of the sleeves. With amazement, Kathleen declared, Lord, do it again. Arms grow out longer. And the arms grew some more. Kathleen looked at Brielle a third time and said, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. And her arms grew straight out some more. By now, Brielle's not-so-tiny arms made her little outfit look rather silly with these beautifully long and plump arms. Praise the Lord. Arms which before barely reached her belly now reached fully to her knees. The doctors proclaimed Brielle's arms perfectly normal and said no further follow-up was necessary. If the only option we have is God's breakthrough, we will find our way contending to God for God to break through more often. And so it's, not, again, not that we ignore all the things that we have, but we make the first option God and see what God will do. And let me close with this. So the last thing of when the miraculous becomes the first option, we know this happens when it becomes the known option. This is really important. In verse 12, the summary of what happens here, it says, and they took the youth away alive and we're not a little comforted. That's an understatement. Can you just, I want you just imagine what this is like. I don't know how long Paul talked, but it probably could have been in the neighborhood of eight, eight hours. The guy could talk. But embedded in the middle of that is a miracle of a guy dying and being raised from the dead. And when they walked away, they didn't say, man, Paul's message was great. We heard the gospel. And No, no, what did they walk away? They were comforted by the fact that somebody had died and was raised. They probably walked away and didn't even remember a word that Paul said for all the time he spoke. Why? Because God broke through. And then, can you imagine what happened in Troas after that? Word spread. Yeah, Paul was going on and on and on. And you know Eutychus? You know, we've known him since he was a kid. He fell out of the window. And then Paul comes down and he gets raised from the dead. And this is incredible. And it just spreads. And what happens in the city of Troas? People know that the followers of Jesus are people of power that God shows up in power, and that starts to spread. And that's why we know, as you read through the book of Acts, the reputation of what Jesus does in people's lives grows and grows and grows and grows because what the church is looked at as a place where people understand the power of God and people experience miracles. Now, the question is, is that true for us today? Are we known for God's power, or what are we known for? If you stop the average person on the street who's not a churchgoer and not a follower of Jesus, and you ask them, hey, what is, what's the reputation of the church? Does God's love and power come to the top? 
Well, usually that's never even mentioned. But what if? What if revisiting the past to take hold of the future means we become like the church used to be? That when somebody goes through crisis, it isn't that they have to come to a location or to a service, but they come to a follower of Jesus because they know that person prays, that person believes, that person experiences the power of God. What if that was our reputation? That would transform any city that there is a Christian in. Just like it transformed Troas, just like it transformed every city that Paul's going through. What if we were known as people who saw God's power? So I think I've shared bits and pieces of this before, but before we moved to Oregon, Kim worked a lot of different secular jobs. In fact, she worked for one individual who was probably at the time one of the wealthiest guys in California, ex extremely successful businessman. I mean, just multi, multi-millionaire, just had been successful in everything that he did, and he knew it. And he was confident in his ability, and he was an outspoken atheist, and he knew Kim was a Christian, and so he ridiculed her a lot. But he had a, God had given her favor with him, and, and he respected her, even though he disagreed and didn't believe there was a God. And so over a number of years, when, once we moved to Oregon, uh, Kim had still kept, kept in contact with him. And it was probably we had been in Oregon for three or four years, and one day she got a call from him. Out of the blue, and he, he was emotional, he's in tears. And he said, hey, my, my daughter was traveling from California through Oregon, and she's just been involved in a very serious accident. And she said, I'm calling you because I know that you pray. This is a guy who ridiculed Kim and didn't believe there's a God. But he said, would you pray that God would heal my daughter? Only God can get an atheist to ask for healing. But he called Kim, why? Because he knew that Kim believed that God could break through miraculously. His daughter's fully recovered today, so obviously God's hand played some role in what happened. But I want you to see that what if that was you got, what if that was normal, everyday life, you get the call. Maybe you're at work and somebody's going through something and somebody, somebody one of your coworkers gets, gets diagnosed with cancer and all your coworkers say, hey, you know what? We gotta go talk to Steve. We gotta go talk to Judy. Why? Because they pray and they believe that God actually does miracles and we got no other option. Let's try it. Can you imagine what that would do to your work environment? That's the way it's supposed to be. That we're known for God's power. Otherwise, we're just like any other social club on the planet if we don't have God's power at work in us. I wanna close with this, <clears throat> in fact, and then, and then we're gonna take just a couple moments to pray in a couple of different ways before we conclude, but I've noticed in my life, and it's probably true for you as well, that it's the longer you know Jesus, good stuff happens. You become more mature, you understand things more, there's a depth for your walk, but there's also something bad that happens. That we lose the faith that we first have because we become sophisticated and complicated and sometimes we become jaded, and we lose what it is to do what Jesus says we're always supposed to do regardless of our age. Approach his kingdom like a child. Approach relationship with him like a child. And a child is innocent. A child is dependent. A child has faith. And they live that way. And there's something about us recapturing that innocence to believe that God can do what he says he's going to do. It's really important. So a number of years ago, in fact, I'll tell you, so she, she is. So my daughter, Courtney, by the way, is back from college, from school. She just came back this week, so... It's great to have her back. And so I, my Father's Day is I got both my kids with me for the first time in a few years. So it's great. So, but when Courtney was four years old, her, her uh, cousin, who was five, had, had to go in for hernia surgery. And so he went into surgery, and then when he came out of surgery, he was in serious pain. 
And so, you know, when you're five years old, you don't hide your pain very well. And so he was in severe pain. And so, of course, we're all concerned for him. And, and of course, there's adults there. But Courtney, with her faith as a four-year-old, goes over to her cousin Brendan, lays hands on him and prays for him that God would heal him. And his pain disappeared on the spot. And we were, of course, the adults are like, Wow. And then I went, Courtney, that's amazing. We're like, like, wow. I mean, we're all feeling convicted as adults that we didn't do the same thing. And Courtney's response was perfect. She goes, well, yeah, Dad. I do miracles for God. <laughs> At four years old. Now, I know we all know that Courtney doesn't do the miracle. God does the miracle through her. But for her, it was like, yeah, we do miracles for God. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to live under, this reality. The faith of a child says, yeah, miracles are normal occurrences if you're followers of Jesus. Now, I get it. doesn't mean that every single time God does the miraculous, but God is at work accomplishing his purpose, both through miracles and through suffering. I get that. But I think we'd see a lot more miracles if we had the faith of a child that says, yeah, I serve a God who does miracles, and I'm going to default to praying first and then doing all the other things that we do second and see what God will do. Would you close your eyes? I want to just give us a moment of focus. There's two things I want to pray for specifically. The first one has to do with probably a specific group of people who, who are here today. If you have been dealing with, in your life, a disease that maybe you've had for a long time or it's been diagnosed recently, physical pain that you've experienced in your body, Maybe you're in, in, a, in a crisis in a relationship. Maybe even a marriage that's about to end. Maybe you're facing completely overwhelming financial circumstances that are just, you, there's nothing you can do. You're at the end. Or anything that maybe I haven't even highlighted, but you are at a place where if God doesn't break through, then you're done. I'm gonna ask you right now, I'm gonna not to expose anybody, but I'm gonna just ask you in, in, in faith to stand to your feet right now because we wanna pray. We want to pray that we are choosing the miraculous option today that God does miracles. And we're going to put it on God, not on us. We're going to let God be the one that answers. So as you're standing at your feet, and I'm going to ask everybody else to open your eyes and see who's standing. Okay? Now I want you to just get up from your seat and go to where those are standing right now. We're going to, everybody get, I want to lay hands on all those who are standing right now. Because we want to pray for God to do the miraculous in their lives. Everybody, is everybody make sure you got at least one or two or five or ten hands on you? I'm going to pray. Okay. Lord Jesus, we know that you didn't record and inspire these amazing things that happened 2,000 years ago just to tease us to think somehow, oh, that was nice when it was back then, but it doesn't happen today. Lord, we're convinced. You're a God that never changes. You're a God that is the same today, and we believe that. And that's why, Lord... We ask right now as hands are being laid on these individuals who are dealing with disease and physical pain and financial challenges and relational challenges and whatever else they are facing. Lord Jesus, you are the option. You're the number one option to answer to their needs. And so right now, in the name of Jesus, we ask that Jesus, you would heal every disease in this room. Lord, whatever it might be, if it's cancer, if it's something chronic, if it's MS, Lord, even if it's diabetes, whatever it is, 
Lord, whatever pain is in physical bodies, in Jesus' name, I pray for healing right now where there's been injury and there's been a pain as a result that where the injury is, there would be full restoration, where bones are mended, where muscles are repaired, where tendons are reattached, where vertebrae are realigned, where nerves are brought back into alignment with the body, Jesus, that you created this person to have. For those, Lord, who are dealing with financial issues that are overwhelming, I pray that you would break through and in Jesus' name you would pour out your blessing on people who are at the end. Lord, even, Lord, we know that we get ourselves in over our head, but Lord, even overwhelming debt that is our responsibility, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and you would provide in such a way that you would create surplus where there is deficit. In Jesus' name. And for relationships that are at the end, I pray for miraculous restoration, for redemption, for reconciliation. Lord, where there is, there is offense, where there is hurt, where there is separation, we pray, Lord, that you would bring unity and you would bring wholeness and health in relationships. And Jesus, by your wisdom and your power, all other sicknesses, all other diseases, all other challenges, Jesus, we ask right now that you would answer to and you would transform and you would heal because we know that you are a God that does that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So I'm gonna ask you, everyone's still standing, I'm gonna ask you right where you're at, just put your hands out in front of you. Okay, go ahead and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray in a moment. We're gonna pray for, I'm gonna pray for everybody that God would empower us to, to live this out, but those who you were just prayed for, if you have felt any change in your condition, physically or whatever you know that you're dealing with, I wanna encourage you that when we conclude this prayer and we're, we're finishing, that you would tell those who prayed for you, there's something different. I feel like God's done something. Maybe pain has been relieved from you, released, and you know that you feel like something's different. Would you tell people so that there's a testimony that God has done something in your life? But Lord, as we stand here with our, our hands out in front of you, Lord, we wanna take a posture of receiving from you your power. And Jesus, you, you said this in the Gospels and you did it in the book of Acts, that you would send your spirit so that we might have your power at work in us, that you might gift us and equip us to accomplish your purpose, which is to see the gospel spread, see the kingdom come, which means, Lord Jesus, on earth as it is in heaven, there aren't sick people in heaven anymore. There aren't people in pain in heaven. There aren't people with financial problems in heaven. There aren't people with relational problems in heaven. Why? Because that is where your kingdom is perfected. And we pray today on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus, would you come and fill us with your spirit? Equip us with the miracle power that you have. Equip us, Lord Jesus, with faith that we don't have. Equip us with knowledge and wisdom that we need in praying for people. Equip us with all the things that we don't have that we need in order for you to always be the first option, to always be the miraculous option in our lives. We thank you, Jesus. So would you fill us with your spirit once again today in your name.